K. Arthur once said, If you do not plan to live the Christian life totally committed to knowing your God and to walking in obedience to Him, then don't begin. For this is what Christianity is all about. It is a change of citizenship, a change of governments, a change of allegiance. If you have no intention of letting Christ rule your life, then forget Christianity. It is not for you. You know, every religion in the world promises something, right? They all do. Otherwise, who would give religion the time of day? Why would we take all the time and make all the effort to follow something that promises nothing, right? What would be the point? So, of course, they all promise something. There's a a major difference, however, between all of those other religions and Christianity, of course, because the followers of those other religions have to earn their way to those promises, They have to to try and be good enough on this earth so that in the end their good deeds outweigh the bad. So the ancient Egyptians believed when a person died, the the personality of that individual survived death in the tomb, provided that person's corpse remained with its ka, or its life force, which was to be nurtured by the contents within the tomb, which is why they were buried with lots of material things packed in around them. Hinduism says that the soul accumulates karma, this system of cause and effect based on the actions of each individual throughout his or her life, which ultimately determines the outcome of their eternity. In China, it is the duty of every generation to secure sons, to perform rituals in order to satisfy one's ancestors in the afterlife. And so those who die without relatives to care for them, they become beggar spirits or hungry ghosts. Uh, The Shona of South Africa are devoted to past ancestors as well, but they believe those ancestors communicate with the living and offer advice through dreams and visions, even mediums. But if one fails to heed the advice of the spirits, or if one neglects their ancestors, they will be punished with illness or even infertility. Muslims believe that salvation comes to those whose good deeds outweigh their bad. And so in hopes of pleasing Allah enough to earn their way into heaven, they recite extra prayers, they fast, they go on pilgrimages and perform as many good works as they can in hopes of tipping the scales in their favor. All of the other religions promise something as long as you can do enough to deserve it. And then along came Jesus, and in one unfathomable act of love, He obliterated every other religious system in the world. By dying for us, he secured a promise that we could never earn and do not deserve. He did what we could not do so that we could have what we could not otherwise obtain. Which means there is no amount of good deeds, no amount of prayers, no amount of religious devotion that can save us. Only Jesus can save us and that by his grace through our faith in him, period. Which is a promise, of course, exclusive to Christianity. On the surface, then, it would seem that as Christians, we have no reason to bother with good deeds or righteous behavior or adherence to a moral code, right? Because Jesus took care of all of that for us. Except the Bible plainly tells us that good deeds should be a matter of course for the Christian, that righteousness should be a hallmark of the follower of Christ, and that we're to conduct our lives according to a moral code. (laughs) So what gives? Is Christianity different than all of those other religions or not? Well, of course, the answer is yes, Christianity is different because living our lives by strict biblical standards is not the means to our salvation. 
It is the result of our salvation. It is the evidence that we have already been saved. You see, our our salvation is not based on our behavior. It's based on the shedding of the blood of Christ on a cross and His resurrection from the dead and His ascension back to the Father. So because of the work that Jesus did, we're now offered salvation by His grace through the faith that He's given us to be able to believe in Him in the first place. Right? You probably know all of that. So, So that we cannot now claim one shred of credit for our own salvation. We cannot boast any personal uh, effort of our own that secured the promise that God has made to his people because it isn't only because of him, only because of Jesus that we're saved. And so, look, due to that breathtaking reality that we're now recipients of eternal salvation and eternal life spent in the presence of a holy and loving God, we have the ability, because of the free will that He has granted us, we have the ability and responsibility to live according to all that He's commanded us in Scripture as our grateful response to His gracious gift that we do not deserve and cannot earn. So there is a cause and effect to our behavior on this earth as Christians, but again, it's not what our salvation is based upon. You see, that's the difference between Christianity and other religions. Our salvation is secure in Christ because of what He did, not secure in us because of anything we could ever do. And yet our behavior still matters because He responds toward us based on our behavior toward Him. There is a cause and effect. It's not the, the, it doesn't affect the status of your relationship with Christ, but it certainly uh, affects the quality of your relationship with Christ. It, James, the brother of Jesus, said, draw near to God, and what? He will draw near to you. There's a cause and effect. Our behavior matters. James 4, 8, Jesus said, if you abide in me, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 15, 7. There's a cause and effect. David said, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord and trust him and he will act. You do this, I'll do this. Psalm 37, 4 and 5. See, our actions, the way that we choose to live our lives Yield a response from God, not to earn our salvation, but to allow us to accomplish everything that he's called us to accomplish in this life. That's the whole point. It's not about losing your salvation every time you mess up. It's about missing out on all that he's planned for you every time you choose anything less than radical obedience to his word and to his voice. I mean, how many people settle for far less than what God has prepared for them from before he he built the foundations of the earth, right? Because of the risk of radical obedience. And there is risk because of the cost of radical obedience. There is a cost. We certainly see examples of that throughout Scripture, examples of those who missed out on all that could have been because they were concerned with the risk involved to obey God. They were still God's people, but they were never fulfilled. They never fulfilled all that they could have had they committed themselves to a life of radical obedience. Okay, listen, uh, doing this your way is only going to get you so far. Doing it God's way will get you farther than anything you could ever dream up on your own. But that very much depends on the choices that you make in this life. So ask yourself, how far do I really want to go in this life? How much do I want to accomplish for God in this lifetime? 
How much eternal impact do I really want to have in the lives of others? Because God will take you infinitely farther than you could ever get on your own, but that will absolutely require a radical obedience on your part. So how far do you want to go? How much, how much desire is there, really? How much desire is there inside of you for all that He's prepared uh, in you, for your life in this lifetime? Do you want all of it? Because you can have all of it if you're willing to live a life of radical obedience. In fact, I'll prove it to you. Let's turn in our Bibles together to the book of Joshua, chapter 5. We're going to pick the story right up where we left off last time as we continue our sermon series, working our way through this book. And we'll, we'll see what happens when God's people decide to live with radical obedience, both to His Word and to His voice. We'll begin by reading verse 1, Joshua 5, 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they'd crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Uh, If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you know that the Lord in that part of the book parted the waters of the Jordan River so the Israelites could cross over it into the promised land, the land of Canaan, much like he parted the Red Sea when they left Egypt. And so now they've made it to the other side of the river, and everyone in the land knows it, right? And furthermore, they know how it happened. The God of the Jews had supernaturally parted the waters, which means the same God who's powerful enough to hold back a deep and fast-moving river at flood stage for an entire day, while two and a half million people with all their belongings and livestock cross over, That same God is clearly on the side of the Israelites, who, by the way, aren't entering Canaan to say hello. Right? They're entering Canaan on a military conquest to take possession of the land from the current tenants. Remember, 40,000 elite fighting men from the Transjordanian tribes are going in front of them. Right? So you've got the Amorites and the Canaanites. Those are two different terms describing the same people living in different areas. They're shaking in their sandals because they know what's coming. Let's keep reading verses 2 through 7. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Harloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they'd come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war, who came up out of Egypt perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So the Israelites who had come up out of Egypt had all died in the wilderness, right? We covered that part of the story, leaving a new generation to inherit the promised land. But this new generation was uncircumcised, which actually uh, actually says far more about the previous generation than it does the current one. 
Okay, circumcision was a sign of the divine covenantal relationship between God and his people, much like water baptism today, which he established with Abraham back in Genesis 17, where all males belonging to the Jews were to be circumcised when they were eight years old. So why was this current generation born in the wilderness never circumcised? Well, verse 6 tells us the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. There's a cause and effect. The previous generation was disobedient. They did not follow God's word or his voice. They were still his people. Yet his purposes for them were never fully realized in their lives. Why? Because of their disobedience. And so now there's an entire generation who does not carry the mark of the covenant among them. And so God says, Joshua, it's time to change that. And therein lies the difference between previous, uh, the previous generation and this current one. It's radical obedience to God's word and to God's voice. And it was radical, as we'll see. Verse 2, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So God gives a very specific command. He doesn't merely say, Circumcise this generation at some point during the conquest, Joshua, or once you get settled in the land. No. He says, Make flint knives and circumcise this generation now. Okay, well, first of all, they had 40,000 armed men in front of them. There were plenty of sharp metal weapons already there which could be used for circumcising. But God's instructions were very specific. Make flint knives to circumcise the sons of Israel. So he wants Joshua to honor the original practice of using flint or obsidian. It's a rock that was found in abundance in biblical lands for carrying out this mass circumcision, which was an ancient ceremony indeed. We have Egyptian texts all the way back to the 23rd century BC that reference mass circumcisions and also texts from the sixth uh, Egyptian dynasty that describe the use of flint knives in circumcision. And of course, back in Exodus chapter 4, Moses, his wife Zipporah, used a flint knife to circumcise their son. So this is nothing new, but it's also quite specific of a command to be followed, which when you read it, sounds simple enough, but keep in mind, there are over 600,000 men in this generation, and that's just counting those who were 20 years old and older. Can you imagine how many flint knives have to be made to carry out this massive task? It seems perfectly reasonable for Joshua to say, hey God, uh, you know we have all these knives and weapons here, right? How about we just use what we already have instead of collecting all of that flint and taking all of that time required to make enough knives to circumcise hundreds of thousands of men while our enemies look down on us. But there is a greater reason for Joshua to question this command by God because they, they weren't on the eastern side of the Jordan anymore. They're in Canaan now among their enemies very close to the city of Jericho. I mean, hey God, Look, I get that you want everybody to be circumcised. I get it. But shouldn't we wait till after we take down Jericho? Seems like a perfectly reasonable request because once all of the men are circumcised, they ain't taking down nothing. They're sitting ducks for the enemy. They can't fight. They have to heal first. I'm telling you, if there was ever a moment to question God, this is probably a good one. But that's not what Joshua did. 
In fact, there was no questioning of God's command. There was no second guessing of God's word. And there was no attempt to bargain with God. No, Joshua, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. And what was Joshua's response? Verse three. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Harloth. By the way, Gibeath Harloth, the place where over a half a million men were circumcised. When you translate the title of that town directly from the ancient Hebrew, the name of that place means hill of the foreskins. Wonder why, right? So here they are, completely unable to fight. They didn't necessarily know that all of Canaan was afraid of them. We know that now. They didn't know that then. They had no way of knowing that they wouldn't come under attack during the several days they couldn't fight, which would have been the perfect time for their enemies to attack them. They would be unable to prepare for battle while they were busy collecting flint and making all of those knives and then doing the procedure and then healing up. Okay, on the surface, what God was telling them to do at best seemed like really bad timing and at worst seemed like a sure way to get yourself killed. But they did exactly what God commanded them to do without question or hesitation. This was radical obedience to God's word and to God's voice without compromising the slightest detail. You understand the risk involved, the cost involved. They did it anyway. So what was the outcome of that obedience? Let's find out. Verses 8 and 9. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. The name Gilgal in the ancient language is derived from a Hebrew verb, which literally means to roll. That's why God named the place Gilgal, because that's where he rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Now, wait a minute. Joshua says that only after they radically obeyed God did God say, Today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. It's an odd thing to say because they left Egypt 40 years ago. They were already free from Egypt for 40 years. But you see, even though God had removed his people from Egypt 40 years earlier, they never removed Egypt from themselves. Not until this day, when for the very first time, they chose radical obedience to his word and to his voice over holding on to their past. Radical obedience to God brings freedom from bondage. The Israelites left Egypt a long time ago, but Egypt never left them. They were, they were clinging to their past, to everything that enslaved them. And so it wasn't until they chose obedience to God's word and God's voice for their today that they were truly set free from their yesterday. Look, a lot of Christians today who, although God has set them free, you're set free from your past. They refuse to let go of their past. They cling to their hurts. They cling to their sin. They cling to their fear. They hold on to their old ways of thinking, continuing to live in bondage to all the things that enslaved them before. And so they miss out on everything God has for them now. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Corinth, he was referring to these same people here in this story, the first generation that came out of Egypt. This is what he writes. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place 
as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5. Paul says we really need to learn from our forefathers in the wilderness that you can be set free by God but still live in your bondage as if you weren't. And the truth is there are Christians today who live in the very same way that first generation of Israelites did in the wilderness. They're children of God. They've been saved by grace through faith. They've been bought by the blood of Christ and their past has been washed clean, removed from them as far as the east is from the west. But you wouldn't know it by how they live their lives today because they're still holding on to yesterday. You understand, your past does not own you. Your past cannot hold you. Your past does not define you. If you're a child of God, you've been delivered from your past. So why do we still cling to it? Well, you might be surprised to learn that the inability to let go of your past actually has nothing to do with your past. On the contrary, it has everything to do with your present. Okay? The key to freedom from your past is radical obedience in the present today. Because if you're a child of God, you have already been set free. I've said it before. We live in prisons that we build around ourselves. People cling to their past, not because their past was so great, but because they're unwilling to be obedient to what God is calling them to right now. They're afraid of the risk of obedience. They're afraid of the cost of obedience. So they revert back to what they know, because often that's easier than obediently accepting what God is calling them to right now. It's, it's common when you talk to believers who are stuck in the same old patterns, Seemingly unable to break free from old habits, old ways of thinking, old attitudes about their spouses or their friends or their work or their lifestyle. You'll commonly find that they are quite unhappy about being stuck in those old ways of doing things or those old ways of thinking. And they'll often express frustration about not being able to move on from that place, not being able to break free from the way they've been living or thinking. And I'm telling you, Every time when you talk to them about moving on from that old way of thinking or that old way of living, what that would look like, what they need to do next, the next steps to take to move on from there, there's always an excuse as to why they cannot do what must be done in order to move on and finally be free from their past. And then these, these sessions, these meetings just become like an echo chamber because we don't, we don't want to uh, risk what obedience requires. We don't want to pay the price. It's, it's not the past that's the problem. It's an unwillingness to be obedient to God today that is the problem, which is exactly what the first generation of Israelites were struggling, struggling with in the wilderness. They kept living in their past. We, right, we read it. Would that we would be back in Egypt by the meat pots, reminiscing about the good old days. They kept living in the past because they feared what obedience would cost them in the present, okay? If you're a child of God, if you've truly been redeemed by Christ, you belong to Him, but you can belong to Him and still live in the past, missing out on everything that He has for you right now, or you can belong to Him while living a life of radical obedience, and you'll leave your past somewhere back there in the dust where it belongs, but only you can make that choice, because listen, the greatest obstacle you will ever face between where you are and where you need to be in this life is you. People talk about obstacles. We talked about it a few weeks ago, and they focus on the obstacle. 
listen, the greatest obstacle you'll ever face between where you are and where you need to be in this life is you. I don't care what the obstacle is outside of you. Radical obedience will necessitate risk. Of course, there is a cost, yes. But if that's what God's calling you to, the only person who can truly keep you from it is you. The devil can't stop you from getting where you need to be. God won't stop you if you're living your life radically obedient to his word and to his voice. The truth is, I think if we're being honest, we don't like to talk about obedience much these days in church because it sounds too much to us like legalism, right? Talking about obedience makes us uncomfortable because it sounds restrictive, like the opposite of freedom. Obedience feels, it feels like bondage to a set of rules. But actually the opposite is true. Think about it. Why do people end up in prison? They end up in prison when they disobey the law. It's it's disobedience that brings bondage. Obedience is what ensures freedom. But living a life that is radically obedient is a choice. It's a choice that only you can make, which is true for all of us. Let's keep reading verses 10 through 12. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. All the way back in uh, Exodus 13, 5, as the Israelites were leaving Egypt before they crossed the Red Sea, they were commanded to celebrate the Passover feast when they entered Canaan. Right? So it's a 40-year-old command. Here they are, again, even before the conquest for Canaan begins, taking time to carefully obey the word of the Lord and celebrate the Passover. Defense is down. I mean, they could have said, let's take the city first. Let's defeat our enemies and then we'll celebrate. But that's not what God called them to do. Their first responsibility was to obey God. And that's exactly what they did, risk and all. So they were greatly blessed. In fact, this was a, this was a turning point. For Israel, because from this point on, the manna ceased as they were able now to live well off the land. Because Canaan, as mentioned in verse 6, was a land flowing with milk and honey. Which apparently, by the way, wasn't hyperbole. It's not an exaggeration because we have an early 2nd millennium, an early 20th century B.C. text from an Egyptian official named Sinu who visited the land of Canaan and he described it this way. I'm quoting. He said, plentiful was its honey. There was no limit to any kind of cattle. In other words, Canaan was flowing with milk and honey. So the obedience of the Israelites, although seemingly risky to expose themselves first through circumcision and now by celebrating a feast on the plains of Jericho with their defenses down before taking any military action whatsoever against Jericho, their obedience was paying off. But listen, it gets even better. Let's finish the chapter, verse 13 to the end. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I've come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. 
So as Joshua goes out by Jericho, he's probably sizing up the city and thinking about his next move. He sees a man standing there before him with his sword drawn, not your typical greeting from a stranger. So Joshua asks a perfectly logical question. Are you for us or for our adversaries, which is really best understood? Are you one of us or are you one of them? To which the commander of the army of the Lord rightly answers, no. In other words, I'm neither one of you or one of them. I'm not one of yours or one of theirs. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. You're one of mine. Now I've come. So Joshua falls down to worship him and asks, what are you here to tell me? In other words, give me my marching orders, to which the commander of the army of the Lord replies, take your sandals off from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And in perfect obedience, Joshua does just that. And yet, look, as, as compelling, as gripping as this part of the story is, just based on what it says, What's most compelling about it is what it doesn't say, at least not directly. The most fantastic part of this passage is the identity of the man with the sword. We know, of course, he's the commander of the army of the Lord because he says as much. And yet, if that was all we had to go on, we could reasonably assume that this may have just been an angel of the Lord as seen in Numbers 22, 23, and 31, or 1 Chronicles 21, 16. It could have been even the archangel Michael as described in Daniel 10, 13. Uh, Daniel 12, 1, Jude 9, we just saw Revelation 12, 7. But we know this was much more than just an angel, as wonderful as that would have been. Or even the archangel Michael. First of all, when men in Scripture fell down and tried to worship angels, which you see throughout Scripture, the angels would stop them and warn them to worship God only. They would rebuke them. And yet here, when Joshua falls down and worships the commander of the army of the Lord, he does nothing to stop Joshua from doing so. Secondly, Joshua refers to him as my Lord, and, and more than anything else, Joshua is told to take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. That is precisely what Moses was told when standing in the presence of God himself at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. You see, Joshua was encountering Jesus Christ himself, the commander of the army of the Lord, who was with him, with them, and would go before them. Joshua was experiencing the manifest presence of Jesus himself. Why? Because he'd been radically obedient in every single instruction, in every command, in every leading by God. Joshua was obedient at every turn, and as a result, he was standing in the very presence of God because radical obedience to God draws the very presence of God. Jesus said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, Whoever is obedient to my commands, my word and my voice, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John 14, 21. Think about what Jesus is saying here because we sing songs asking for more of God. We yearn for him to move in our lives. We pray and ask for him to speak to us because we long to hear his voice. We read the scriptures for comfort, for guidance, for wisdom, for understanding, because deep down I think we know how desperately we need him to show us the way, to strengthen and revive us. And all of that is good and right, but Jesus says what you're looking for when you sing and when you pray and when you read can only be found in my presence. You see, anyone can sing worship songs to God. But without the presence and participation of the Spirit of God, all we're doing is making noise. 
Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. John 4, 24. Okay, anyone can pray, but without the presence and participation of the spirit of God, our prayers are useless. Paul said, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Romans 8, 26 and 27. Okay, anyone can pick up a Bible and read it, but without the presence and participation of the Spirit of God while we read, there is nothing to be taken from it. The Apostle Paul said, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we've received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 1 Corinthians 2, 11 through 13. Yes, we should sing to the Lord. Yes, we should pray. Yes, we should read the Word. But without the presence and participation of the Spirit of God, I'm telling you, we're wasting our time because the key to the Spirit of God actively manifesting His presence and power in our lives is not simply going through the religious motions of singing and praying and reading. No, the key to experiencing the manifest presence and power of God is living our lives with radical obedience to His Word and to his voice for that is when Jesus said he would manifest himself to us obedience when that happens when you begin to live with radical obedience I'm telling you that's when your worship comes alive that's when your prayers are effective that is when his word transforms you because his spirit is present and participating in your life like never before you want more of God in your life the answer is not more singing, more praying, and more reading. At least not until there's more obedience, which unfortunately is the step I think most, most people want to skip over, and instead they just sing louder and pray harder and read more, and then they wonder why nothing is changing in their life. Because as long as we resist living with radical obedience, our singing and praying and reading won't accomplish anything of lasting value. This whole concept of living with radical obedience is what eluded the Israelites all those years in the wilderness. They went through the religious motions the whole time. They were very religious people. But what they needed more than religion was the presence and power of God working in their lives. And yet the very key to that happening was the very thing they lacked. Obedience. They were still God's people. But that first generation in the wilderness never fulfilled all that they could have had they committed themselves to a life of radical obedience because doing it your own way will only get you so far. So ask yourself, how far do I really want to go in this life? How much do I want to accomplish for God? How much eternal impact do I want to have in the lives of others? Remember what Jesus said. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. John 15, 7. You see, the, he will take you infinitely farther than you could ever go on your own. But that will absolutely require 
a radical obedience on your part. So I'm just asking you, how far do you want to go? How much desire is there really inside of you for all that he's prepared for your life? Do you want it all? Because you can have it all if if you're willing to live a life of radical obedience. Let's pray.